1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So the commitment God calls us to have is nothing greater than the commitment Jesus had in enduring suffering for our salvation. In the last days, we need to have a commitment to God that will endure through great struggles. And Jesus communicated the same idea when he told us that anyone who would come after him must take up his cross and follow. In Matthew 16, verse 24. Where he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So taking up the cross meant that you were absolutely committed and not looking back. And many of us are defeated in our battle against sin because we refuse to sacrifice anything in the battle. We only want victory if it comes easily to us. And Jesus called us to have the kind of attitude that would sacrifice in the battle against sin in Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 and 30 where he says if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin to cut it off and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell and so when a person suffers physical persecution for the sake of Jesus, it almost always profoundly changes their outlook regarding sin and the pursuit of the lust of the flesh. That one is more likely to live the rest of his time in the flesh, not for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So whoever has suffered for doing right and has still gone on obeying God in spite of that suffering is involved, then they have made a clear break with sin. So if we have not physically suffered for following Jesus Christ, we can still connect ourselves by faith to Jesus who has suffered for us in the flesh. Right? So I beg you to remember that there is no getting quit of, of sin. There is no escaping from its power except by contact and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter gave us two time references that are helpful in having the right attitude in our following of Jesus Christ. First, no longer should we live in sin, and we should answer every temptation and sinful impulse with a reply, no longer. And second, we should carefully consider how to live the rest of our time. God has appointed us some further days on this earth when each of us must answer to him how we live this time. Verse 3 through 6. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the man in the flesh. But live according to God in the Spirit. So Peter realized that we all have spent enough time living like the world. Now we're called to live like Christians. So it's a profound and foolish waste of time for Christians to live like the world. We must simply stop being double-minded and start living as Christians. So sadly, many Christians in their heart of hearts think that they have not spent enough time doing the will of the ungodly. They want to experience more of the world before they make a full commitment to godliness. And this is a tragic mistake and takes a path that leads away 
from eternal life. And so lewdness, this word, is going to begin a list of sins that Peter understood should only mark the past life of Christians and not the present. This word means to live without any sense of moral restraint, especially in regard to sexual immorality and violence. So lewdness denotes excesses of all kinds of evil, involving a lack of personal self-restraint. And so the term pictures sin as inordinate indulgence of appetites to the extent of violating a sense of public decency. So when we look at this list, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, we see just how little fallen man has progressed in the last 2,000 years. These problems have not been solved since the time Peter wrote the letter. And so when the world looks at our godly living, they think it's strange that we do not follow them and their flood of dissipation or their wastefulness. If life lived after the flesh is anything, it's a total waste. Consumer culture is a lie. And so, speaking evil of you, when we don't participate in the sin around us, we convict those who practice their sin. And they don't like that, so they're going to speak evil of us. And so, when this account is required, they will give account to him who is ready to judge. All who live in the sins Peter described will clearly see how foolish they have been. Even if one seems to live the good life, living by the world's rules, his life will be a waste in the measure of eternity. And so Peter also says that because of this eternal judgment, the gospel was preached to the dead. The righteous dead know and live on in constant awareness of the reality of eternity and are rewarded by this understanding as they live according to God in the Spirit. So Peter has already told us that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison, preaching a message of judgment in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, which says, "...by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison." So apparently during this time, Jesus also preached a message of salvation to the faithful dead in Abraham's bosom in the paradise side in Luke 16 verse 22, so that it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And so um, the faithful who anticipated the work of the Messiah for them. This preaching to those who are dead was not the offer of a second chance, but it was the completion of the salvation of those who had been faithful to God under their first chance. So in doing this, Jesus fulfilled the promise that he would lead captivity captive, Psalm 68 verse 18. Right, You have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. And he would proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, and Luke 4, verse 18. So it may be also that Peter here had in mind those in the Christian community who had already died, perhaps even dying as martyrs. If this is the case, then Peter used their heroic example as a way to encourage his suffering readers to also be faithful. Verse 7, But in the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Right, But the end of all things is at hand. So if we really believe that we live in the last days, then it's all the more appropriate that we give ourselves to prayer. And so many Christians who believe that Jesus is coming soon based on prophecy charts or political events fail to apply that belief in the proper way. They fail to apply themselves to much more diligent prayer. And so we must give ourselves to serious prayer as we see the weight of eternity rushing towards us. We dare not take the need for prayer lightly. 
And we must give ourselves to watchful prayer, primarily having our hearts and minds watching and ready for the return of Jesus Christ. But this also means watching ourselves and watching this world, measuring our readiness for Jesus' coming. Verse 8 through 11. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if these are the last days, then it is important for us to love those who we're going to spend eternity with. Eternity is a long time. In light of eternity, we must have fervent love for one another. So start loving them now. And so love does cover a multitude of sins, both the sins of the one loving and the sins of the one who is being loved. And so love will show itself in hospitality. Christians should often open their homes to others and doing it all without grumbling. And so without grumbling is a frank recognition that the practice of hospitality could become costly, burdensome, and irritating. So the Greek term denotes a muttering or low speaking as a sign of displeasure. So it depicts a spirit that is the opposite of cheerfulness. And so love will show itself as we give to the church family what God has given us as gifts. As we do so, we are good stewards of the many-faceted or manifold grace of God given to us. In 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10, Paul makes it clear that uh, he was what he was only by God's grace. But at the same time, his grace towards me was not in vain because Paul put his own God-inspired efforts to work with God's grace. The idea is that if we are bad stewards of the manifold grace of God, it is as if that grace was given to us in vain. That grace is wasted because it only comes to us and it doesn't move through us. And so every part is important. Each has its job to do if anyone ministers. Let him do it with the ability which God supplies. So even the smallest, seemingly least important part of the body of Christ is important. So as we serve one another, we do it with the strength that God provides, the ability which God supplies, so that to him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Verse 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So instead of thinking of trials, even fiery trials, as strange occurrences, we see them as ways to partake of Christ's sufferings. And if we partake of his, Christ's sufferings, we will also partake of his glory and joy. And so Peter once told Jesus to avoid the suffering of the cross in Mark chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. So once it seemed totally strange to the apostle Peter that his master should even think of suffering, now he thinks it strange that he could have even imagined anything else. So we can only partake of Jesus' sufferings because he partook of our humanity and sufferings. So he became a man and suffered so that our suffering wouldn't be meaningless. 
So it is good to share anything with Jesus, even his suffering. And so our tendency is to embrace the glory and the joy and to avoid any sharing of Jesus' suffering. Or we morbidly fixate on the suffering and forget that it is but a necessary prelude to the glory and joy. So we should never deny the place of suffering and building godliness in the Christian life. Though there is much needless pain that we bear through the lack of knowledge or faith, and there is also necessary suffering. So if suffering was a suitable tool to teach Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, where it says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So it is a suitable tool to teach his servants also. And to the extent implies a measure, those who have suffered more in Jesus will rejoice more at his coming in glory. Verse 14 through 16, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So suffering for the name of Christ is a blessing because it shows that we really are following Jesus and that we suffer because we're identified with him. So we expect the world to blaspheme Jesus, but he should always be glorified among Christians. So suffering as an evildoer is deserved and brings shame to the name of Jesus. So Peter recognized that not all suffering that Christians experience is suffering in the name of Jesus. Right? Murderer, thief, evildoer, busybody. So we understand when Peter writes about the suffering that might come to the murderer, the thief, or the evildoer. Yet we shouldn't be surprised that he also includes the busybody in other people's matters. Such people do suffer a lot of grief and pain, but not for the sake of Jesus. That's what the book says, not me. And so suffering as a Christian is nothing to be ashamed about, even though the world may despise the suffering Christian. Instead, we should glorify God in these matters. One, because it's right here in the text. It's proof in the pudding. So we don't glorify God for suffering, but we glorify him in suffering. And we glorify him for what he will accomplish in us and through us with that suffering. So the name Christian, Christianos, built on the name Christ with the suffix ienos, which is a Latin formation. And so it's going to denote a partisan follower. Christian categorized the followers of Christ as members of the Christ party, not little Christ as some popular explanations would have it. So Christians were first known as disciples, believers, the Lord's disciples, or those who belong to the way, before they were known as Christians, first at Acts Uh, In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Acts 11, verse 26. So this is the first of three places in the New Testament where followers of Jesus are named Christians. All right, so... Acts 11 verse 26 tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In Acts 26 verse 28, Agrippa told Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And this shows that between Acts 11 verse 26 and chapter 26 verse 28, Christian had become a popularized name for the followers of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16 
The idea is that some are suffering because they are identifying as Christians. And this shows that the name had become very widely used, so much so that one could be persecuted for being numbered as a Christian. Verse 17 through 19. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, will there... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So in the context of suffering, Peter tells us that judgment begins at the house of God. So right now, God uses suffering as a judgment in a positive purifying sense for Christians, the house of God. So it is right for judgment to begin at the house of God. There is equity in it for Christians profess to be better than others, so they ought to be. They say they're regenerate, so they ought to be regenerate. They say that they're a holy people separated unto Christ, so they ought to be holy, separate from sinners as he was. Uh, so now is our time of fiery trial. In verse 12, the ungodly will have their fire later. The fire we endure now purifies us. The fire the ungodly will endure will punish them forever. And so yet we will always remember that there is never any punishment from God for us in our sufferings, only purification. So for the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and for all at the cross, where Jesus endured all the punishment the Christian could ever face from God. And so that same fire that consumes straw will purify gold. The fire is the same, but its purpose is in application is different and its effect is different upon the straw and the gold even so christians do suffer some of the things the same things the ungodly do yet the purpose of god is much different and the effect is different so peter's sobering application is clear if this is what you know god's children experience what will become of those who have made themselves his enemies how can they ever hope to stand before the judgment and wrath of God? So Christians can rejoice that the sufferings they face in this life are the worst that they will ever face throughout all of eternity, ever. And so we have seen the worst. Those who reject Jesus Christ have seen the best of their life, the best of life their eternal existence will ever see. Since this is true, that the salvation of the righteous does not come without difficulty, then it should make us pause if we ourselves or others seem to have an easy salvation. It isn't that our salvation is difficult in the sense of earning it or finding a way to deserve it. It is all the free gift of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. Yet our salvation is hard in the sense that it claims of discipleship challenge. Um, the claims of discipleship challenge us and demand that we cast away our idols and our sins. So real discipleship and genuine following after Jesus Christ is sometimes a hard thing. So we understand why Peter quoted the passage from Proverbs 11 verse 31. The righteous one is scarcely saved. And so Peter again made a distinction between those who suffer according to the will of God and those who suffer otherwise. Not all suffering is the will of God. And so the commit their souls to him, the ancient Greek word translated commit, is a technical one. It's used for leaving money on deposit with a trusted friend. Such a trust was regarded as one of the most sacred things in life, and the friend was bound by honor to return that money intact. 
So it's the very word Jesus used when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, in Luke 23, verse 46. So when Christians commit their souls to him, they leave their souls in a safe place. God is a faithful creator, and we can give ourselves to him as pliable clay in his hands. And so much of the agony we put ourselves through in times of trial and suffering has to do with our own disregard of God's faithfulness or of his place as creator. He is our sovereign creator with the right to do with us as he pleases. Yet he is faithful and will only do what is ultimately best for us.